This is a podcast of Highland Hill Community Church in Tacoma, Washington. You can visit our website for more information at www.highlandhillchurch.org. And let's go to our message. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. There we go. In 588, now we're going to cover some history this morning. In 588 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem for the third time and besieged it. And for 18 months, the siege wore on. Famine and pestilence ravaged the beleaguered city. And at last, the armies of Babylon breached the walls and conquered Jerusalem. They burned that glorious temple that Solomon had built. They broke down the city walls and they carried away all that was valuable, including any of the surviving inhabitants that had any skills that might be of use to the Babylonian king. After 70 years in exile, 48 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, a group of these people and their their children and grandchildren were allowed to return to their ancestral home. And after some time, they, they rebuilt the temple. Nothing of the the grandeur that had preceded it with that beautiful golden building that Solomon had built. But they rebuilt the temple. They reinstituted the temple sacrifice. They instituted the worship of the Lord in accord with the book of Leviticus. But Jerusalem was still a city without walls, defenseless, and in great reproach. In verse, uh, in verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Chislu. And we'll come back to the, the month thing in here in a little bit. In the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace. Now, where he's located. The year is 445 B.C. Over 70 years since the temple had been rebuilt. Over 90 years since the return of the exile. So, the All that I just told you in the introduction was ancient history as far as Nehemiah was concerned. His uh, his great-grandfather probably had been involved with some of this stuff. The place is Shushan, the palace. Some of the newer translations will have Susa. This was one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. They actually had three. Uh, At the beginning, I think they just had the two, and they built a third one. And they were at different elevations. So in the wintertime, he'd be at the low elevation one uh, so he could stay warm. And then when it was hot in the summertime, he had one up in the mountains. And uh, this would be the palace of the king in what is now southwestern part of Iraq. Persia and uh, Iraq are the same basic nation. Matter of fact, uh, the name didn't change until 1933. It's over a 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. And if you were to go back and read Ezra chapter uh, chapter 7 and 8, you'll find that for Ezra to travel from there back to Jerusalem was a four-month journey. And so uh, so quite a distance. And so he's, he's there in, in Shushan the palace. And it says in verse 2 that Hanani, one of my brethren, came and certain men of Judah. And, uh, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. He's not, yeah, probably some small talk, but uh, they've just come back from this journey, but he has a vested interest. Now understand, Nehemiah had probably never been there. He'd never been there. His, his, uh, his great-grandfather 
or maybe even great-great-grandfather, had been deported from there. But he himself had probably never been there. He was involved very much in the, the government of the, uh, the Persian Empire. He had, a, he had a fantastic job. He had a cushy job. We'll see that in just a little bit. And, uh, but he had never been there. So he's, he's talking to his brother who had made the, the long journey and was now returned. And he asks about the situation there. He's probably asked in curiosity and courtesy, How are the people? He says. Let's go back and look at this. And he said, and uh, how, how are, he asked about the, the, concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left at the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. How are the people? And how is Jerusalem prospering with the returned captives, with the rebuilt temple? And he probably had assumed with the rebuilt walls. The walls back in the ancient times, before the, the advent of gunpowder, were, uh, were necessary for the security of a, of a city. Zerubbabel, who was, uh, if you read the first part of, of Ezra, this is the, the guy who went back uh, originally and rebuilt the temple. He was the governor that was appointed by the king of, of Persia. The rebuilding of the walls had been attempted by, by Zerubbabel and it had stopped by Samaria. By the way, when you read the New Testament, you see this, this hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. It goes back to the book of Nehemiah for the most part. A little bit before then, but mostly here. They were, uh, they were hostile to the Jews. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They had no interest really, even though they, they say otherwise, they had no interest really in the rebuilding of the temple there in Jerusalem and did everything they could to keep the Jews from prospering because they wanted to be the, the dominant people in that, uh, in that region. How are the folks there? And uh, the, the walls had been uh, destroyed. The gates were burned at that time. Nehemiah probably has no information on that. He knows uh, from the records there in Persia what had been uh, decreed by the king. And it says in verse 3, they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. This is not good news. There are people there, they've gone back. The temple's been rebuilt. The temple worship is going on, but other than that, things are, are not in a good condition. Now, we get information like that, and most of us will say, well, I'll pray for you, and then we promptly forget to do so. It may, as we think about it later on, we'll do one of those quick little prayers while we're behind the wheel of our car or wherever it happened to pop into our heads. But that's probably the... the, the uh, the extent of our, our involvement in something like this. We can shrug our shoulders and say, there's nothing I can do. But that is not what, what Nehemiah did. There was shock, shock, there was weeping, there was sag, sadness. And he's also going to pray. And he's going to pray in earnest. It's been said that the, the force of prayer is greater than any possible combination of man-controlled powers because prayer is man's greatest means of tapping the resources of God. I dare say that one of the reasons, and we'll look at a couple of these as well, one of the reasons that the church is in the condition it's in in the Western world. By the way, we look at what's going on in Christianity here in America and a lot of places around the world. Understand that there are places around the world where the gospel is going gangbusters, where revival is happening. 
we read about revivals in America and generations gone by. He says, oh, that God would send a revival. We have this very Americentric worldview. But God is doing some great and wonderful things in different places around the world. For eight years, my, my brother, who is also a pastor in, in Michigan, has, uh, had, has taken missions trips to the Dominican Republic in the West Indies, you know, where all the baseball players come from. And they actually use baseball as a means of, of generating a crowd. They do baseball clinics, and the kids come out of the woodwork. The, the, the elementary age kids there play baseball like the high schoolers do here. And, uh, and so they do the baseball clinics. They go down there with the team, teach the kids some of the basics. And then my brother preaches through an interrupter, interpreter. And he's down there for 10 days. And on average, in the eight years he's, he's gone down there, they see 50 professions of, week, uh, of, of salvation in the 10 days he's there. And then he goes back the following year, and there's lots of little churches. They don't have big churches for the most part there. They have a bunch of little churches because everybody walks or rides a bicycle to church. So the churches are, are three to five miles apart. And they have little congregations, and most of the pastors are bivocational. They preach on Sunday, and they're running, doing something, you know, farming or whatever during the course of the week. But he'll go back and he'll preach. And those, those children, those young people that got saved the year before are in church with mom and dad and their siblings. It isn't just a passing thing. There's something great and wonderful happening in the Dominican Republic. So much so that the, the, uh, the president of the country wants to get some of those Baptists involved in the government because they're honest and hardworking. And I could say the same thing about a number of other places around the world, unexpected places where God is sending, uh, doing some great things. God is doing some great things in, in places like Vietnam and Iran and Zimbabwe and a number of other countries around the world where, where uh, we hear sometimes about persecution. The devil's trying to thwart the work of God, but I'm telling you, some great things are happening in different places around the world. And prayer makes a difference. Every revival in American history was preceded by a time of, of earnest prayer. And so Nehemiah begins to pray, and it came to pass, verse 4, when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned certain days. It wasn't just a passing thing. And he fasted. And he prayed before the God of heaven. And then we have his, his, his prayer. By the way, we look uh, where we start. We deal with, with Chislev as the, the month that this thing starts. That would be comparable to our November, December. When we get to the end of this thing, it's, it's uh, the month Nisan. And it's March, April. So he's been, he's been doing this for four or five months. He has been praying in earnest. He's, he's persevered. He's, he's sticking it out. There are, there are some people that I have been praying for for decades. And sometimes some great and amazing things happen. I, I, have some, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Some of my family are believers, some are not. And I have, uh, all of them have heard the gospel at least, uh, well, a bunch of times actually. But many of them are unbelievers, and I, I had uh, unforeseen opportunities to share the gospel this past summer with, uh, with cousins and a brother, and uh, just some, some, some great opportunities praying that God would do a, a work of grace in hearts and lives. Uh, side note, my brother and I, the one who's a pastor, are the, uh, the, only, are the children of the only divorce in my extended family. And for years, some of the Christian family members on my dad's side of the family prayed for these, these two dead-end kids, they called us. Uh, the foul-mouthed kids with the long hair. I grew up in the 70s. 
and, uh, and we would go out and visit my dad in the summertime. My, my parents lived in different states. And uh, I'd get dragged off to church when I was, uh, and it wasn't much of a church. They, there was some Bible stories and stuff. I never heard a, heard a straight gospel the whole time I was going to that church. But I got the stories. And my family play, prayed earnestly for these, these two vagabond boys that God would do something great with them. I came to know Christ reading a gospel tract in a waiting room. By myself. It put the pieces together, and alone in that room, leaning against the wall next to a payphone, that'll let you know how long ago that was, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I had no I, I had a Bible that my grandparents had given me, and it would be two years before I got into a church, but I immediately started to pray and read and study my Bible. My brother got saved the same week, different place, different setting, reading a gospel tract in a waiting room. A year goes by, I come back out to uh, where my dad's extended family is, and here he got these two Bible-thumping kids, and they just were blown away that God had answered their prayers. So, don't give up. Pray. Pray. Don't be there in shock and weeping and, and lamenting and saying, oh, well. Pray. And don't quit. Don't quit. And so Nehemiah prayed certain days over a period of months. And let's look uh, briefly at his his prayer here in chapter 1. In verse 5, we start with exaltation of God. He says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Exaltation of his person, his nature, he's great, he's terrible, he's merciful, his power and strength mentioned there in verse 10, and giving examples of what he's done, of keeping his covenant and also dealing with redemption down in verse 10. It says in verse 6, let now thine ear be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray now before thee day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, for we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. He prays for his nation, for his forefathers, and for himself. Now, here's a guy, you'll read the book of Nehemiah. Now, you'll see him get upset about some things, but it's righteous. You will not find a sin problem, personally, in Nehemiah, as you go through the book. Here's a good man a man who has a heart for the things of God, a man who is determined, he's made up his mind, he's going to do what's right. And yet when he's confessing the sin, he's dealing with the idolatry and and the rebellion of Israel against their God, he says, we. I'm part of the picture. I am not innocent. I'm, I'm part of the problem. Now I'm going to let you in on something. When you look around our nation, and all of us do this, don't deny it, we're a bunch of news junkies, we know what's going on, and we lament over this, and we grieve, and we like to point the finger. Oh, look at what these guys did, and look at this guy over here, and can you believe what they're doing? Why is the nation in the condition it's in? Now, we can point the finger at all kinds of, of different situations. I want you to understand that uh, if you study history of doctrine and so forth, 
Political liberalism is the child of religious liberalism. Let me say that again. Political liberalism is the child of religious liberalism. 150 years ago, some of the churches began to teach that the Bible is not the word of God. And that if there is a heaven, we're all going there. And God is a God of love, and he would never punish anybody in hell for eternity. And that Jesus was just a good example. There's no redemption in the the Calvary uh, cross. And they undermined biblical truth. And they brought it into the churches. Now, I don't know about this place. But I know at my church, if somebody were to get up and start teaching that kind of nonsense, he wouldn't finish his sermon. Somebody would go up, tap him on the shoulder and say, you're done. And I have seen that done in a church before. And it needs to be done a lot more. And if it had been done and was being done today, the problem we see out here wouldn't be there. Because the problem we see in America is the result of Christians sitting on their hands when lies began to be promoted from the pulpit. Understand that 150 years ago, you could go into virtually any Lutheran church, Baptist church, Presbyterian church, Methodist church, and hear the gospel. What happened? Believers sat on their hands when the lies came in. And so we look at what's going on around us, and ultimately, it's our fault. Because we didn't take a stand for right when we needed to. And instead, we let the, we let the liars take over. And they began to dominate, and they took over the denominations, they took over the schools, and this is the result. So when we look at the situation in our nation today, instead of pointing the finger... We need to recognize the fact that the reason we have the situation we have today is because believers refused to take a stand for what was right when they needed to. They did not take a stand against error in-house. And the failure to deal with it in-house resulted in what goes on outside. Because you've got churches all over America that are filled with lost people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I dare say that in the United States today, the vast majority of people that are standing behind the pulpit today Do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's true. It's true. And so Nehemiah says, we. And we should too, as we pray for our nation. I'm part of the picture. What were the the sins of ancient Israel? You go through your Old Testament. You read the book of you read the book of Joshua, or excuse me, of Judges. You read the books of Kings and Chronicles. You read the prophets who prophesied during the time of the, uh, of the kings. What was going on? Well, there was murder going on, and people were not held to account. There was all sorts of sexual debauchery and depravity going on. All sorts of violence. People turning away from God and worshiping. By the way, what was the appeal of Baal worship? You know, for years, I'm, what, was the, what was the deal? I mean, they haven't... The God of Israel is a God who does stuff. You read Isaiah and and Jeremiah and so on, and and bowing down to, to, to blocks of wood that do nothing, that do not speak, do not hear, do not see, do not walk, do not have fingers to do anything. And yet the God of Israel, 
The God who is the creator God, part of the Red Sea. He fed them with manna. There was the pillar of fire and the, and, and the, uh, the, the pillar of cloud. Who parted the Jordan. Who set hailstones on their enemies. Who did all these, the God who does stuff. What was the appeal of a block of wood? Why was this a perpetual problem? I'll tell you why. Because Baal worship was a fertility cult. And you see ritual prostitution and all these other things. You see the depravity of man on parade in Baal worship. And so the appeal is I get to do what I want and what the lust of the flesh craves and what I want to do and I can make it sacred. And that was the appeal. I can indulge my flesh and pat myself on the back for doing doing a good deed while doing it. Idolatry, homosexuality. These were the problems in ancient Israel. Is it really any different than today? See, one of the reasons that you can preach from Nehemiah or Joshua or the Psalms, the life of David, or any of these things, you can preach from a a book that is between 3,500 and 2,000 years old, and it's still as relevant today as it was then, is because people are no different. And so we read about the, the problems of ancient Israel, and it's, it's no different than the things we're wrestling with today, because people have not changed. He says in verse 7, we have dealt very corruptly against thee. And have not kept thy commandments, nor thy statutes, nor thy judgments, which thou commandest thy thy servant Moses. They had forsaken the commandments in acting corruptly, in their failure to fulfill temple service, in disregard for the law of Moses, and in contempt for the prophets, killing and stoning many of them. Our Lord talks about that. And so he says in verse 8, remember. In his prayer he says, remember. I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses. Now it's fascinating. You get to, uh, there's different places, but especially in, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. Mos- By the way, Deuteronomy was probably an all-day sermon. This is Moses parting words with Israel before the Lord took him home. And you have a great warning. saying, this is what, this is what you're going to do. And he talks about all these these sins that Israel is going to do, and they're going to turn their backs on God. And then he gives a promise. And he's going to to quote extensively from from Deuteronomy here. In uh, starting verse 9, I'm going to to read this from uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, And thou shalt call them to mind among the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee. And shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity, and have compassion on thee, and will will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out of the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee. And from thence will he fetch thee. 
And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. In Deuteronomy, there's a proposal given. There's a choice. If you obey, number one, you'll get to stay in the land. But if you rebel and you then obey and turn to the Lord, then there will be restoration. But if you disobey, you'll be scattered and remain scattered. And that's been the history of Israel. They deserve the captivity. We see that in verse 8. Understand that, and we've got to be careful as far as what we expect God to do. When we come to him in prayer, those who do not acknowledge a need, number one, will not be helped. And those who do not acknowledge their sin will not be forgiven. If I make excuses for my sin, I'm not asking God to forgive me. And so Nehemiah makes the request in verse 9. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out to the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. He's asking God to keep the promise that he made back in Deuteronomy. Now, he says, These are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power. God has done an amazing thing with the, with the nation of Israel. They're still there today. Is there any people on earth that for 3,000 years have maintained their, their cultural identity and integrity, have to at least a large degree maintained their religion, maintained their, or restored their language, and in our day and age are back in the land that they lived in 3,000 years ago? There is not a people on earth like that. Not even close. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy great hand. God has made promises to Israel that he must keep, and that's why the Jews to this day still exist. You look at their history, it's amazing how many times the devil has tried to to exterminate them, to render them extinct. But they have to be because God made promises. And they have to be there for the future. O Lord, I beseech thee. Let now thine hand be attentive. Thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant. And to the prayer of thy servants. Who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day. And grant him mercy. Ah, here's where we get to the rub. Nehemiah is in Shushan the palace. What's he doing in Shushan the palace? doesn't say until we get to this verse. He's the king's cupbearer. Now, the Persian kings ruled a vast empire. You read about uh, uh, King Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes in, in the book of Esther. He ruled an empire that went from the Indus River, Pakistan, to Libya, and all the ground in between. Biggest empire that never existed up to that point in time. A huge amount of territory. A huge number of people. An awful lot of power. If you study the Persian kings, most of them did not die of natural causes. Most of them died by assassination. I, personally, I, I, I'm not interested in the job myself. It's, it's uh, too dangerous. 
as a result of such things, Persian kings lived in, in, a, in a, a, a semi-secluded lifestyle. They lived with just a small circle of people that had access to them to protect themselves. Nehemiah, as the king's cupbearer, would, would also be his, his wine taster and his food taster. Make sure he wasn't being poisoned. He would be the, the keeper of accounts. He would be the guy who, who keeps the log of who's allowed in and who's not. Keeps the date book for the king. He is one of a handful of people that would regularly see the face of the king of Persia. And when we read the first several verses here of what's going on in Jerusalem, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, is there anybody that Nehemiah has any connection with that can do anything about it? There's one person, the king. The king of Persia, a different one, is the one that allowed them to go back and rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. Another king is the king that sent Ezra back. The king makes decrees. He's the one that makes a, a statute that no one can overturn. He says, now I was the, grant that grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, I'm going to draw a conclusion. I think that when Nehemiah first got the news from his brother about the situation there in Jerusalem, that he was upset, he was shocked, he was dismayed, and he began to pray, God, do something about this. And we may pray over situations. People bring up prayer requests. You read something. It's, oh, and you, and you may start to pray. And something may be burdened on your heart. And you start praying for something. And most of the time, you can't do much. You might be able to send a little bit of money. Occasionally, like my brother going to the Dominican Republic, you can actually make a, make a trip and maybe even do so on a regular basis. And maybe make a, humanly speaking, a little bit of a difference. And I think that as Nehemiah prayed during this, this, these four months, that somewhere along the way, like you see in the comic strips, that little light bulb showed up over his head. I, Nehemiah is probably thinking, I think that I'm part of the solution. I think that God put me in this place at this time to accomplish something. And more than just to taste the king's wine and, and keep his accounts. I think he put me here for a reason. That God put me here at this time to help the children of Israel and the folks there in Jerusalem. He says, for I was the king's cupbearer. he began to realize that he was part of the answer to his own prayers. And so let's look just at the beginning of chapter 2. Four months, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less, four months, probably a little more, have gone by. He has been praying. Day and night, it says. He has been fasting. He has, he's, he's in earnest about it. He's praying with tears. This is something that's really on his heart. He has not quit. There's been perseverance in this. Now it came to pass in the month of Nisan, okay, four months, 
in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. He comes in, and he's carrying the, the goblet. And I took up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. Kings like to see happy, cheerful people. He doesn't want to see somebody whose, whose lower lip is, is dragging on the ground. Somebody who's all red-eyed and puffy-faced from, from crying and so on. But Nehemiah has been so absorbed by, by this for the last four months that he's, he's, he's thinking about this and not about what he's doing. And therefore, he's, he's distracted in his mind. And he comes in before the king, and instead of thinking about the king, he's thinking about Jerusalem and what's going on. And it's showing on his face. And the king looks and sees this man. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy, thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Now, if this was some friend of ours, we would think, Oh, here we got somebody that's going to be, be trying to cheer me up and give me some encouraging words and so on. But it says, Then I was very sore afraid. This is the king of Persia, most powerful man on earth. And if he doesn't like my service, he can replace me with a word. As a matter of fact, if I have offended him in some way, my, the reason I might need to be replaced is because I don't exist anymore. I could be thrown in a dungeon, I could be executed, and the Persians were not particularly kind and sweet with their modes of execution. You get that by reading the book of Esther. And so he's afraid, and then he says, and I said unto the king, I love this. It's like, I'll go ahead and, and, and say it all. And I said unto the king, let the king live forever. Long live the king. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? There, I said it. Because <sighs> that's what's been on his heart. Then the king said unto me, here's, here's where we see his prayers answered. For what dost thou make request? What do you want? And this, the fellow who's asking this is the guy who can give him whatever he wants. What do you want? And it says, I, uh, this, is, this is the great, great understatement, verse 4, the end of verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now there's no prayer recorded there. He's been praying for over four months. This is it. This is the thing he's been praying for. And it's one of these, oh, God, help me. That was probably his prayer. And then he makes the request. Send me. And give me all the equipment and all the things necessary to rebuild the city. And he sends them, and off he goes, and he does it. Read the next several chapters of Nehemiah. It's all there. For I was the king's cupbearer. I'm in that position of influence. I'm the keeper of the, the king's signet. I stamped all for all the official documents and so on. I have, I'm the keeper of the king's accounts. I'm one of the very few that has regular access to the king. And I'm in a position to be able to do something about the problem. For years, 
William Carey prayed for the Far East back before they were foreign missionaries, really. Prayed for China, prayed for India. He was a shoemaker. You know what God did with the, the shoemaker who was praying for, for India? Sent him to India. And the shoemaker, turns out, God had gifted him with a great ability in linguistics, and he was able to translate the Bible into a number of the native languages of India. I'm praying for India that God would send somebody. God sent William Carey. When I was in college, there was a, uh, there was a girl who was putting herself through, through Bible college. She's only, the only believer in her family. And when they would meet together as a, as a prayer group in the evening like they did back in the day, I, I still do that way, her, she would pray and ask their, the prayer group there to pray for her family that they'd come to know Christ. And when this girl would bow her head, she'd say, Lord, I ask that you'd save my family. Even if it cost me my life, may you save my family. And that summer, that young lady died. And her gospel-preaching pastor did her service. And her family were there and trusted Christ as Savior at her funeral. Lord, whatever it takes, accomplish this task. When we pray for something, are we, are we burdened? When you see a need and are burdened to pray, do you consider whether or not you're, you're part of the solution? I dare say that many of us have prayed for certain people for years and have never shared the gospel with them, never shared our testimony, never, never given them a gospel tract, never, never invited them to church. Oh, they might be on our heart from time to time. We may pray for them to time, from time to time, but we have never considered whether or not we're part of the solution. What would God have you to do? Because in some ways, all of us in our own place are the king's cupbearer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your goodness. Father, thank you for the position that you've put us all in. All of us are in the best place possible to reach certain people. Father, you and your providence have put us where we are. Our circle of acquaintance, the people around us. Father, may we live the part. May we pray. And Father, may we do something about it. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. You've been listening to our message from Highland Hill Community Church at www.highlandhillchurch.org. Please join us where you can find more ways to connect with us. We hope to see you soon.